welcome to the first episode of a brand new series, uh, spinoff, uh, imprint, if you will, of No Cartridge called GG No Reread. I'm here with everyone's favorite, uh, Miss Olivia. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. I am uh, beyond chuffed to begin GG No Reread. Wonderful. I'm also beyond chuffed. I was just thinking about how chuffed I was. Yeah, I think that <laughs> everyone is so excited that they are never going to have to reread a book, and uh, it started by us rereading a book. Yeah, we're handling that for you. You don't actually have to read this. The secret is, once you listen to this podcast, you won't actually need to reread the books we cover, um, and you won't have to replay the video games that we cover with them. You can uh, just be very smart at parties. Yeah, the idea behind this series is that we are... Um, we are doing the reading for you. We're doing it the best way the first time, which is why you don't have to reread anything. We're doing the 360 no scope of reading. We are globaling, globaling these books. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we are. No, it's, it's completely correct. Um, no one, you, any reading you're going to get after this is going to be um, the wrong take. I mean, yeah, at, at best disappointing. <laughs> um, and, and, if that wasn't enough, we're also combining them with video games that are not, um, they're not adaptations. We're not doing like the book. Uh, although actually the one adaptation would be the book of great Gatsby and the video game of great Gatsby. That would be good. But, um, uh, no, like, like we're not doing the book of something. And then the, the, the video game of something that you're not going to get, uh, Batman comics and Arkham Knight or something like that. This is, these are books that are uh, like paratextual in a certain way. They exist in conversation only by way of our analysis. I do not think that the creators of the game we're talking about today ever thought about the author we're talking about today. And based on uh, when he passed away, I do not, I am, I'm sure the author never thought about the video game. So if, most of these will be this way. And I think uh, you're going to hear analysis here that, um, you know, is is new even to us? Like we're we're thinking through a lot of these issues for the first time too. But it's going to be stuff that you haven't heard as well. And it's, you know, it's uh it's analysis about two of our favorite things, uh, books and video games, and and stuff that doesn't always uh intersect as often as we'd like. Yes, we are making them intersect. We are. <laughs> we forcing, hope you like make, it. <laughs> we're making them kiss. <laughs> That's basically this is the books and uh, books and video games need to kiss more podcast. Yeah, if you ship books and video games, this is the series for you. If you are, if you are VG Books, hashtag VG Books on Twitter, um, you know, welcome. Uh, we stand you. <laughs> we see you, and you are valid. <laughs> um, so this week we're going to be covering uh, two beloved properties. I would say. Um, actually I can make the, I can make the scandalous admission. I haven't even made to you, Olivia, that, um, I have never, um, I have never played, um, or I've never played, I've played Pokemon. Uh, that's our game we're covering today. We're covering Pokemon, <laughs> but I have never seen the movie that our book is, uh, is the inspiration for. I've never actually no seen No way. It. It's true. I've never seen Blade Runner. Uh, <laughs> a bizarre admission if ever I had one. But. Before even saying what book we're doing, we're, we are doing, do androids dream of electric sheep? And I thought apparently people would like Trevor... to feel smart knowing that that was the one that came, where it came from. <laughs> and Trevor's apparently never seen Blade Runner. I know. Isn't that weird? I've never seen Blade Runner. That's bizarre. It, 
I know it's it just kind of like it 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 missed me somehow. I said I said miss me to Blade Runner. <laughs> miss, miss me with, with that, that generally. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's I I you know, I re- I would really like to see it. I've I've it's been on my list forever. I thought about teaching it at one point to force myself to see it, but um, while I've read uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep uh, probably like half a dozen times, um, I've never actually seen the movie. I hate that. I really, I hate that. You, you would you hate like that, this movie. That, it's not a movie that you have to psych yourself up to see. It's like an action movie. Is it? So like, uh, tell me, tell me this about, and this is the last question I'll ask about the movie, because this is a books podcast and I will not be focusing on that dashing Harrison Ford and his, uh, <laughs> his Android, uh, foes. Um, is, uh, is the book pretty similar to the movie? Um, in the general ideas behind it, um, okay. there's none of the the animal stuff in the movie, which is oh such a huge chunk of the book that it's hard to wow. Yeah, that's the, uh, the general very surprising. of it is uh, similar. There's no Buster friendly in Blade Runner, which is uh, unfortunate. No Buster friends. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm not surprised. There's no Buster friendly. Um, <laughs> Honestly, though, it's um, it's a shame. Uh, I think Buster Friendly is one of the best characters. I also think the animal stuff is is kind of in, indispensable, but I get it. Like, I get why you'd focus it more around the bounty honey stuff than uh, the character, like, definitely wanting a goat. Yeah, <laughs> which is that there's no mercerism in Blade Runner either. It's really just that they took the the bounty hunter android human philosophical stuff and just plopped it into like a really cool looking movie okay that makes sense um yeah i think so i think like that makes a lot of sense to me and the the reason that people i'm trying to think of how to say this the reason that people get like frustrated or angry at the distinctions between the book and the movie when like people will read do android's dream and be like well i wasn't really like the movie or they'll watch blade runner and be like the book's very different um Mercerism is really sort of like, and we'll, we'll talk about it a lot, but Mercerism is really kind of like the the secret philosophical star of this book in, in like it kind of is the glue that holds the whole thing together. So I get why they kept it out of the movie. I also get why it drives people nuts. It seems like it would be hard to put into a movie and be able to talk about it as briefly as they can in the book and as effectively, like to bring it up in a movie you would have to spend, I think, more time on. I mean, you'd have to like show Mercer, and like a, I think that'd be. Yeah, no, a I challenge. think that's absolutely right. I mean, how would you? Although, actually, I mean, you could do it in a. Have you ever seen a, a um, video a video drone or video drone? Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- it seems like if you did some of those like like they're really grainy, sort of weird like torture scenes they do in that when he's like looking through like. Uh, strange cable channels and stuff. You could do Mercer that way, I would assume. It also reminds me of, I don't know if you ever saw the, I don't even remember if this is, uh, how bad this movie is, but the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. It kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of like those sequences where it's like, it was the movie that was made whenever, uh, was it, yeah, was it, it was one of Heath like, Ledger's like last movies. And so I was going to say, yeah, wasn't him. it like post, post-mortem Heath Ledger? 
Yeah, and so he's like his character ends up getting played by like four different people in a way that it wasn't uh, originally intended to. Do you think it worked? I saw this movie whenever I was like fifteen or something. So yes, sixteen. So yeah, it really worked for me. <laughs> just very excited. <laughs> just, just really getting so, into like uh, wow, really more to movie stars. <laughs> just, just talking <laughs> to everyone you know about the imaginary of Doctor yeah, I mean, I think that I think there's like it might be something that was it might be something that would have made it less of a blockbuster, though, because I mean, Blade Runner is a blockbuster in a way that the Imaginarium, Dr. Parnassus and uh, Videodrome are not right where it's like they're a little more niche. They're a little stranger. Um, they're they're kind of less uh, star studded um, in terms of like people's memories of them. They're, I think people would say those are more niche films. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get it. Yeah. Like, uh, the Mercerism stuff is hard. Um, but we'll talk about like what that's all about and the philosophical tie-ins with that. Because I think for me, based on, uh, our previous conversations, cause Liv and I have talked about this previously. We, we chatted beforehand. Um, this isn't, this isn't some fly by night operation. Um, <laughs> A first think, for the show. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, but um, I hope this non-fly-by-night operation is as successful as the fly-by-night operation. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like, it's not – I think the Mercerism stuff is the thing that ties in most to to the Pokemon stuff to me. And and uh, we'll, we'll tease out why that is um, and, and sort of, like, what you think as well. But, like – to me, that's a huge part of why this book works with the game we're considering it with, as opposed to, um, you know, like um, just some sort of random uh, tie in between like, oh, you know, androids are owned and Pokemon are owned. It's not mm-hmm. ever going to be that simple. Absolutely not. And not that the ideas behind like uh, the androids and Blade Runner are it's very simplistic but I think that adding the having the animals as like another aspect in the book makes it more complicated than just like okay humans versus androids where yeah um, there's a uh, increased variety in the hierarchy of how how things play out I agree and I think like it's it's um Especially when it comes to, like, the valuation of electric life uh, that we see in Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the thing I really pulled from it this time that I don't know if I really pulled from last time because I was obsessed with, like, the way images worked in it, which, I mean, is totally reasonable. I think it's still super interesting. But, like, this time I was really interested in how the hierarchy of life worked. And, uh, you know, once you get to that uh, moment where Deckard Deckard is like, yeah, I... um, electric life is life even if it's kind of a meager one um that's to me like the the thesis statement of the book like when it actually like comes around and it's like okay like here's what here's what the book is about in a lot of ways mm-hmm. Which, but I speaking mean, of what the book is about maybe we should tell what the book is about no <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. um so do you want to do this one it um or shall i you shall. Okay, I shall. Uh, so this book follows the – well, this book follows two people. So it's a classic um, sci-fi genre uh, um, constraint of following two different voices or two plus different voices. Uh, I think people might recognize this from books like The Expanse series or uh, even books like, um, you know, A Song of Fire and Ice. Um 
I'm sorry, A Song of Ice and Fire. I uh, say anything. Yeah, sorry. Oh, my God. Uh, or even, like, I mean, even stuff like, um, I don't know, like, plenty, plenty of books do this, right? Like, The Hobbit does this. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a classic trait or a classic um, structure where you get two people so that you can kind of, like, have two parallel plots going at the same point and they eventually converge. Uh, in this, the two people you follow are Rick Deckard, who is a bounty hunter. Uh, we find out that he hunts uh, unregistered uh, androids. Uh, androids in this book are basically robotic helpers that are given to you um, when you emigrate to Mars. Now, you have to emigrate to Mars, or excuse me, many people choose to emigrate to Mars because um, the world has been uh, completely ravaged by nuclear war. Uh, many, many, many uh, species are extinct. Um Life has become extremely rare and extremely uh, valued, but also there's radioactive dust everywhere, and most of the world is just trash at this point, so most people are um, emigrating off-world. And when you emigrate off-world, you get an android. Uh, some of the androids, though, don't like being slaves, and so they revolt, kill their human masters, and retreat back to Earth to hide out. And at this point, they become fugitives that need to be tested with, uh, in this case, the Voight-Kampf te uh, test. Um, that tests empathy. Uh, androids do not have empathy. Humans do. If you are found to be an android and you are on a bounty, you are killed and the bounty hunter gets money. So Rick Deckard is basically tasked with uh, finding six androids that are loose. They're some of the new Nexus 6 models, which is the most uh, advanced kind. And uh, he has to figure out how to, how to capture and kill all of them. Uh, meanwhile, we also meet uh, someone named John Isidore, who is uh, what's called a special, um, or from some people in it, uh, called a chicken head. Um, he is uh, someone who has been affected by the dust and has a lower uh, IQ. Um, special can mean a lot of things. It can mean you're sterile uh, from the radioactive fallout. It can mean that you have a lower IQ. You could have, I, I don't know, they don't go into it. Uh, all of those things. Those are the main two they discuss. Uh, but basically, it means that you cannot emigrate off world and you can only hold certain jobs. Um, you also lose a lot of other privileges. It's a very sort of like um, biopolitical or ableist society as, as we, we might call it today. Um, and Isidore lives in the suburbs where almost no one lives. It's just in this bombed out building. Uh, he works for the same electric uh, animal repair shop that repairs uh, Rick Deckard's uh, robot sheep, um, his electric sheep, if you will. Uh <laughs> And uh, he finds that someone is living in his apartment uh, building, the first person ever to live in there with him. And he finds that it's this uh, shy woman who seems to be nervous about something uh, and also very dismissive of him, uh, sort of a, a strange a strange woman who we find out through the course of the book is one of the androids that Deckard is hunting. And so their collision course is set uh, and it sort of – is a, a standard pulp novel in a lot of ways that uh, gets you to the ending in the manner you'd expect. There's a lot of, uh, you know, conflict, sex, uh, turnarounds, uh, you know, uh, strange dead ends, red herrings. And eventually, um, you know, I, it's not super important how the book ends. Uh, so, you know, if you're worried about spoilers, you can stop now. But you probably know this from the movie or the book. Uh, Deckard kills uh, all all of the androids in one night, um, and Isidore uh, sort of like leaves at the end of the book, um, kind of a broken, sad man. Um, that's the basic plot line, I would say. 
Anything that you would say I missed in terms of the main plot? No, but it sounds very straightforward when you say it like that. <laughs> I, <laughs> it sounds you know what, like I, a normal novel when you say it like that. Yeah, so the novel's real weird. And one of the reasons it's very weird is because of what we were talking about before, which is this, um, this, this uh, I, I don't know what you'd call it, like philosophy, innovation, uh imagining um, speculation about this thing called Mercerism, that and the Penfield mood organ. Um, I feel like the technological advances in this book are um, very non-typical. Like they're not typical sci-fi things, I would say. Yeah. Besides like there's laser guns and androids, but otherwise it's just like things that help you cope with the fact that you're living on a destroyed world. It's nothing that really makes your life better other than imagining that your life isn't what it is. Right. And like the boot organ is just something that you, you like dial numbers into and you have a big book of numbers where it's like, oh, hey, like if you want to feel good uh, and content, uh, dial 686. But if you want to feel like you have a long deserved rest, dial this. Or if you want to feel depressed, dial this. Or like any mood you could want, you can dial in. And then the 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 Mercer box is basically like you hold these two handles and all of a sudden you are one with uh, Mercer, this, um, this uh, messianic figure who uh, we will explain a bit more of in uh, a few minutes. Um, but it's an empathy box, effectively. Like, you just feel one with other people, and you get to feel their feelings, their sadness, their sorrows, their joys. Um, and it, it goes into the larger philosophy of the society that um, it's unjust not to share uh, joys with other people, and it is unjust to uh, take a life from anyone. So, like, everyone is equal. Um, all life is sacred. And... Uh, Essentially, like the whole society is ostensibly uh, geared towards making everyone happier. Mm -hmm. So like people will dial into this like empathy box um, or, you know, hold the handles of the empathy box. And if they're having a great day and they know that they're going to lose joy from doing it because they're sharing their joy with everyone else. But it's a, a calling of society. It's like the one the one purpose. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, and, like, the the singular purpose of Mercerism is, like, this idea that – so can you describe what Mercer is doing? Like, it's, it's, it's very strange. What Mercer is doing? In, in, the, in, the, in the empathy box. Like, when you, when, you, when you tune into the empathy box, you basically become or are with Mercer with a bunch of other people for a while. And he's doing, like – he has, like, a loop, basically. Mm -hmm. He has a play loop. Like there's there's a gameplay loop for Mercer. Yeah, oh, I don't know. It's tough. I like. So my best version of it is he's climbing up this. He, he's running up a hill. Uh, <laughs> he's climbing this massive hill, right? And the story of Mercer seems to be something like he could bring people back from the dead, and he was persecuted for it uh you know stop me if you heard this one before uh and he uh he's persecuted for it and he um he is eventually killed and the cycle that you get when you click into mercerism via the empathy box is you um you get this cycle where he is climbing this hill and being uh, pelted by stones from his killers and uh, you start in the tomb world where everything is dead and 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 rotting, 
and climb to the top of the mountain where Mercer dies and then start again at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing seems to be something like, uh, you know, everyone dies, but everyone is in the human condition uh, together via this sort of like immortal being who is constantly replaying the same loop. Yeah, and they observe like the Mercer death cycle for not only humans, but but consider animals to be part of like the sacred life loop. Yeah, definitely. Like the the um excuse me, the um the way that uh Mercer operates uh seems to include animals if only because Mercer has no um we find this at the end of the book, but sort of uh intimated through the whole book, Mercer doesn't exclude anyone. Um, as, as John Isidore says, uh, to, to his, um, new housemate, uh, Pris, who is one of the escaped androids, uh, you know, like, is it, uh, Mercer accepts, uh, chicken heads like me and Pris, of course, being, uh, kind of a monster says like, well, that's one, what's one thing against Mercerism for me. Um, very, very rough moment for poor John Isidore, but, uh, Mercer accepts people who are specials. Mercer accepts animals. Mercer has like total empathy for everyone in the world, except androids who can't tune into the Mercer box. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And that's like the key thing that differentiates them. Even if they could, uh, simulate empathy is that they, they cannot, um, empathize with Mercer himself. Right. And so the boxes don't work for them at all. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something at the end of the book to, to introduce another spoiler. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, there are like three things you can watch. You can go to your Mercer box. You can watch state run TV, which is just all about emigrating to Mars, or you can watch Buster friendly. Who's on 24 hours a day with his friends. Um, and he's like a comedian. It's basically like daytime radio all day. Um, and everyone loves Buster Friendly and thinks he's super funny uh, because he is. He's great. Uh, and and we love him and value him. Mm-hmm. All of his friends are great. They're always funny. They never say the same thing. Yeah. And they, they literally are on 23 hours a day. There's station identification and then they're back on. <laughs> so it's it's pretty wild. Um, pretty, pretty interesting. But the uh, um, at the end of the book, he has a he has a big reveal, a big expose. He hints at the entire book uh, on TV screens, off off camera, while you're like hanging out in rooms with people. And his big reveal is that uh, Mercer has existed on this soundstage this whole time. He's a fake. Uh, it's this old video of like a drunk actor uh, um, climbing up a hill uh, on a soundstage, and it's just all it's all a it's all an act. You're not actually interacting with someone named Mercer. Um, and for the androids, what this means is empathy is a fraud. Um, and so the, the shorthand in the book for almost everyone is empathy is Mercer and Mercer is empathy. So if you can commune with Mercer, you definitely have the privilege of empathy and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Which is the, the key value in life. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to ask you like, so like we can get into like our feelings in the book now too. Um, and we can explain whatever like plot points we missed. Cause like, like Liv said, this is a strange book because it introduces these giant ideas in like, I mean, if you ever read any Philip K. Dick, this is kind of what he does. He introduces these giant ideas and then sort of like explains them fairly robustly, but like, they're still very weird. 
Like mm-hmm. he introduces the Penfield mood organ and he's, it's like Deckard saying to his wife, like, why don't you dial in a new emotion on the Penfield mood organ? And you're like, Wait, hang on. <laughs> like, I, I'm real lost. <laughs> what are you and this about? is literally page one. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't want it. I, I, I want to stop here. Explain what you're talking about. Why does it have a brand name? What is this? Um, and uh, you know, if you, you can slowly get caught up to speed, but it's a lot. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'm curious about your take on live, um, and, and I mean, I'm curious in general about your, your feelings on this book vis-a-vis like animal rights or animal liberation or, or any, any way you'd want to imagine it, either veganism, vegetarianism, or, or a certain kind of like philo- philosophical, like animal rights thing. Um, like, do you think empathy actually is as important as the text? Oh, let me actually let me ask this first. Do you think the text itself, like Philip K. Dick, the author or the novel, however you want to imagine it, thinks empathy is as important as all of its char- as all of the characters in the book do? Well, I think that they set up empathy in the book to be something that isn't actually real and definable. Mm. Um, I do think that that's kind of like an aspect of a lot of sci-fi is that there's like this obligatory vegetarianism or veganism in the future. And it's just like wild to think that in the future we would still be eating animals. Um, Yeah. But it, it sets this up like the reason that people are empathetic towards animals, like empathetic in quotes is because they've become a, a commodity because they have, all the natural ones have died. And so it's like this sort of status symbol. Um, so that's how they've become important. It It isn't like people that there was like a big animal liberation movement before uh, this like um, nuclear war. It's that after the nuclear war, the owl started dying and then that's when they became valuable. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, and, and like any time there's an animal, it is un, until the very end of the book, it's always associated with um, monetary value as well. Like the, the value of the animal, even if it's like like when um, at the end of the book, Deckard thinks he finds a toad um, and he's like super excited because he's like oh, toads are supposed to be extinct. And he, he checks his price guide. He always checks his price guide whenever he sees an animal. If it, In case you missed that animals are associated with money in the reading of the book. Dick always has him check his price guide, um, which is a nice little met- metonymy. Uh, one second. Okay. That was a cat. It sounded like Tilly. Um, <laughs> nice little metonymy. Uh, Checking the price guide for her. Yeah. Jeez. How much can I sell this cat for? Um <laughs> But uh, but no, it's like it's it's a it's a neat little uh, helper in case you were thinking that the story was not clear enough. Uh, it's pretty clear. Um, but the um, the even when he finds the toad, he's like, "What happens when you find a a a uh, an extinct animal?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, like you get a medal and a stipend in the millions." Like any time an animal is referenced at any point, uh, John Isidore's. Uh, lets the spider out of his house and, and um, uh, Deckard's like, Oh yeah, you could probably get a hundred bucks for that off of uh, if, you, if you like brought it to the authorities. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. my price guide says so. Um, anytime there's money attached to it. You're right. It's not like there's, n- there's not a lot. There's not a lot in it. That is um, 
like just empathetic for the sake of empathy. Yeah, maybe except for John Isidore, who is like actually like, oh, please don't, please don't hurt the spider. Oh, that's and then, the like, saddest part. Pris thinks that he's just scum, and she and John Isidore is just like, well, that's just how she is. Would you like, would you like some wine? This is the only wine I've ever seen in my entire life. Please take it, ma'am. Um, <laughs> just like I so hate I think- it. Okay, well, <laughs> that actually, it's the, the worst. The worst version of it is she says. <laughs> she says, uh, she says, oh, um, uh, he says, how's the wine? And she goes, fine. Just <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> this is so sad. So maybe except for him, um, like he's not whenever he sees an animal um, concerned about the price. And like there's a a time earlier in the book where a real cat dies and he is just like heartbroken. He wants yeah. anything to, to have saved to this cat and just thinks that he's the worst person because he couldn't do it. And I mean, his, his terrible boss is just like so hard on him about it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. Like it, it's a uh... one second. Glad I warned you about Lula beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Isidore actually seems to be like the one kind of, and I mean, uh, Dick makes him this way and it's, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit condescending that he's made sort of like the, uh, the Lenny uh, character from Mice and Men again, where it's like someone who's less intelligent than the other characters in the book, um, but has a heart of gold, like, that's kind of lazy and offensive, but at the same point, that is what Isidore is. And he's, he's very consistent the whole time where like what he cares about is like, what makes him happy is like helping people or being needed by people. Um, that's like what he, what he strives to be. Do you feel like he's actually, um, less intelligent? He doesn't actually seem to be intellectually disabled in this book. It appeared to me that he just had a stutter and yeah, I thought about that a lot, actually. As, uh, as special because he has a stutter. And then they told him, like, okay, well, you're, you know, you're not as smart because you have a stutter. Which happens in um, in real life, too. That people interpret people who have a stutter as being less intelligent. And there's no correlation between um, IQ and stuttering. Well, so that was what I was going to ask. Because, like, is is the, uh, this is this is said because I don't think there's much correlation between intelligence and iq testing either but like the he he just barely doesn't pass the iq test he says he Mm. he like scores just under the level where you uh would have to be to not be a special like could the stutter like is is the iq test because i mean there's a lot of things that influence iq tests that are not at all related to intelligence uh you know there's been studies that show um the uh, that IQ tests are racially biased. That IQ tests have like all sorts of problems. Is like speech? Do you think that would have? Is there any way that that would contribute to that? Well, I don't think we know exactly how this testing is done. So mm, true, could be a completely different IQ test. Well, yeah, and we don't know if it's a, a verbal test or a written test. I don't think is it a. No, they don't really make that clear. So, I mean, it, mm. if someone knows better, please, please let us know. Um, I don't know, though. 
Um, in any case, yeah, I think I didn't think he was any. I did not get the sensation that he was any uh, that he was any less intelligent than anyone else in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that in fact, like in many ways, he was more intelligent. Like he was willing to. Like Deckard has all these um, like deeply. Uh, conflicted moments where he's like, Oh, like what do I, am I going to be able to be a bounty hunter if I can't kill these Andes? And like, I, you know, what do I feel like? Am I in love with this one? Like, what does this make me? Am I human? And, and Isidore is just like, well, you know, they're no, you're no different than me. Like, I don't really see any reason that I shouldn't treat you as an equal. You seem like good company. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like a, a very sort of organic ability to be like, yeah, I, I can see the forest for the trees. Whereas with someone like Deckard, it's like the, this constant tortured uh, approach to the world. Yeah. Isidore overall appears more present and flexible and um, mm-hmm. adaptable to learning than very much more than like Deckard's wife. Oh, yeah. Who's yeah, yeah, just yeah. like just completely chilled out at home. Deckard, Deckard's wife, uh, frustratingly for anyone talking about this book now, uh, named Iran. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Deckard is married to the country of Iran. Um, it's very awkward to describe in the book. Uh, but yeah, no, exactly. And he like, I mean, Deckard actually even says this where he's like, man, like, I wish my wife was an android because, like, then maybe, uh, like, maybe I'd get a decent conversation out of her. Like, she seems completely checked out. Um, and Isidore is, like, is supposed to be a special, but, like, at any given point has better um, answers. And if given the chance, like, when, when when the cat dies and, like, he is, his boss is like, well, you figure it out, like, uh, you figure it out, uh, Isidore, like, you know, you screwed this up, make the call. Um, When he gets on the phone, he's like, oh, like maybe we can do this for you or maybe we could do that for you. And he comes up with all these like really, really good ways of handling the situation and like gets to a point where like he is doing a much better job than anyone who's working for the company. Um, Like he, he does seem like the kind of guy who just was never given a chance. Mm hmm. So, yeah, it, it does suck that he's kind of like this Lenny role, but then also I don't think it really is. I think it's more just um, signaling the artificial hierarchy that's set up in this book that um, that none of this is like actually based on anything real. The lines between people, between, you know, like specials and whatever they want to call non-special humans and androids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like um, I think that's right. Like, there's especially like thinking about so like there's a lot of moments in this book where like there's this fear, particularly with androids, that you could never tell the difference and like what it would mean if you couldn't tell the difference. Um, and so like I think a lot of the times the cops describe it in the book as like, well. You have to be able to tell the difference because the androids, if they get off Mars, they've killed humans to get off Mars. Like, that's the big thing. It's like they have killed humans in order to get off Mars. It's like really important that we are able to know the difference between them and us. Um, but it's the only time I and I can't find it. I didn't mark it. I should have. But like the only time that is that um, uh, Deckard ever thinks about like 
actually not being able to know the difference is when he thinks about sleeping with an android and he's like there's just something so weird about it like something so sad and barren and terrible it's like there's it's not clear what that would be like it's not at all clear why that would be sad and and terrible or anything like that it's simply just like i don't know they're just different they can't bear children they only live four years but like other than that the distinction between human and android is is at best academic Mm -hmm. like did you get a sense of why it's so like uh why it's so important to be able to tell the distinction like if if in fact like it's 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 held with such just like horror if the rosen company were to make like a nexus 7 that couldn't be found via a test like did you get a sense of like what that fear was about well, I think it's just the the artificial value that they've put on their own life and differentiating them because you always need something that's uh, that's a little bit below you. And like if they were able to make something more sophisticated, then maybe they would be more sophisticated than humans. And they talk about that having androids as servants is something that's supposed to be reassuring to these people immigrating to mars and so it's like in this time of uncertainty after a world war if we can't even have um something to rely on to be reassuring to us that they're now Mm -hmm. so sophisticated that they're better than us than what was you know what is left what is left in the world for us yeah no that's probably right like it's it is about like just maintaining a sense of uh, some kind of superiority um, over the world, over something in the world, like maintaining our, our status as apex predator or something like that. Um, basically, like the same reason a lot of people, in other words, are afraid of AI right now, where they're just like, well, what if it becomes better at like playing jazz than me or something like that, right? <laughs> What if it becomes a better jazz man what if than it, me? What if it can beat me at Go? What if it could beat me at Go? I wouldn't be the... I wouldn't... What am I if not a, a an eminent, a preeminent Go man? <laughs> uh, Pokemon Go. <laughs> Pokemon Go to the Go What if tables? it could beat me at Pokemon Go? Uh, I think that uh, the Nexus 7 would be the Mewtwo in this world. I think so. Like I think that's right. Terrifying being... And let me ask, why was Mewtwo so hated? Let's, let's break this down a little bit. Because it, it was unnatural in the same way that androids were unnatural. that They, like, distorted this godlike Pokemon into, like, this scientific, uh, mm. stronger creation. Like, something that was supposed to be so pure. Do you um, think that science is is, like, mistrusted in both? of both Pokemon and androids, because it's certainly distrusted in androids in in a certain way, right? Like, the Rosen Company is very much distrusted. And in fact, like, most of science in this book is is just, like, a kind of an excuse to... Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Science, in a way, is just, like, an excuse to... Um, like make better products like any anything happening on earth isn't about like saving earth everything on earth seems to be something that's going to fall apart anyway everyone just accepts Mm -hmm. this right science is all about like well what can make me more comfortable overall yeah Um, it's like a triage yeah exactly that's a really good way of putting it it is a triage um so yeah i mean do you do you think that science is as distasteful here as it is in pokemon 
it, it it's a little bit mixed in Pokemon, and like I don't think that the treatment of it is consistent. Like the mm. Mewtwo, Mewtwo is clearly disliked um, because of like this um, like desecration almost of like a god Pokemon in view. Um, but then there's other Pokemon like uh, Porygon. That's a like science created Pokemon that's like fairly neutrally addressed. And yeah, then there's also um, Bill in the first games who like can um, like switch bodies with Pokemon, and like it's not like which is truly horrifying. But yeah, they don't treat terrible. it as horrifying. They treat it um, as a cool trick. Yeah, they really do. Like, just that it's... He's just so interested in Pokemon that he just, like, puts himself in the body of one, which is horrible because it's, like, these um, these animals that are... I mean, what, however you want to talk about Pokemon, that they're <laughs> basically the animals of this world um, that are almost entirely subjugated to the humans in the world. And, like, you're just forcing your your brain on this pokemon it's not like pokemon can consent yeah 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 it's true like and and the i think like it's even kind of stranger when some of the science pokemon like if you read up on the bios of some of the pokemon like which i've had to do again because tilly has wondered about these pokemon and i've looked them up like if you look into like a voltorb i always thought a voltorb was a science pokemon but apparently there is a um I can actually like look look up the exact language of this because I wasn't planning on talking about this, but a Voltorb in the uh, let's see in Bulbapedia, the community driven Pokemon. Uh, so apparently, the idea of a Voltorb is that it um, there's like a, a superstition or a tradition in Japan that if um, a tool is 100 years old, it uh, it gains like sentience or life or a soul. Hmm. Um, and, uh, this is apparently the idea of like what the Voltorb is, is it's a Pokeball that has, that has, uh, uh, done this. It is, it is lived and it's, it's, uh, Pokemon number 100 because, um, it is, it is like a hundred years old. Wow. But, yeah. It's, I had it's, no idea. It's pretty interesting. I, I think it's pretty cool. Like the, the. I mean, it's like it's fascinating because like the the concept is like, oh, well, not only was it once inanimate, but now it's animate and you still can own and control it. Like if you if you if you break into it too much, it gets very troubling. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of how Pokemon works is that they're both wild animals that you can catch they're animals that you uh, that you fight with to win money right they're animals that you have as servants around your house they're ha- animals that you have as just pets around your house that you can just treat like you would your your, your dog mm-hmm. um well and like even to the point workers. where like we i mean we were talking about this before but even to the point where like if you um like if you are talking about um, Pokemon Sun and Moon, which is uh, the show I'm familiar with now, one of Ash's Pokemon in that starts off as just this pet that one of his teacher teachers has because his name is Rockruff and he's a dog. Like he, he basically just acts like a dog in the house, and eventually Ash is like, "I wonder if I can battle this Pokemon." 
just like Jesus Christ. A nightmare thing to say. But yeah, no, I mean it's, it's you're totally right. Like it it is absolutely the the distinction between pets and uh you know forces of organized animal battling are completely mm-hmm. blurred. Yeah, but then like some are intelligent enough to be workers. Um, that they use for for labor, for drilling through mountains, or as shopkeepers. Or a lot of them are shopkeepers. There's Pokemon that assist in the universal healthcare. There's Pokemon that you eat. You eat Pokemon. Um, so there's not firm lines between what Pokemon are and how they should be treated. It doesn't seem like there's. It does, there's no PETA, it doesn't seem, in Pokemon. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, yeah, it's 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 odd, right? Like, the, the, the only thing, like, so I'm thinking back to, like, the first series, which is where I sort of cut my teeth on Pokemon when, like, it was first coming out. That was when I was really into it. And, like, in the first series, there's the, there's an episode where Ash meets this guy who has a Sand Slash. Or, yeah, Sand Shrew, excuse me. And he's like pounding on this Sandshrew and just like completely abusing the Sandshrew, trying to get it to learn how to be a better Pokemon. And Ash basically like tells him he's being a real jerk and free Sandshrew. And so like I guess the idea is you shouldn't beat your Pokemon. But you also can put them into like extremely difficult battles and have them like pounded into submission. And the the mm-hmm. the explanation seems to be like, well, look, like the Pokemon really like this. They actually are very proud that they're able to do this. <laughs> to earn you money. Yeah, it's like, okay, I, I, I guess. Like, that's it's a little strange, but all right. Like, it's, there's no real accounting of, like, w- let, me, let me tie it back to androids this way. There's no real accounting of where their value as living things lines up with your value as living things. Like, there's a you can see a fear there where like there are the God Pokemon, uh, like the legendary or sort of like mystical Pokemon that seem to be above typical Pokemon and are treated as gods or are sort of like terrifying in their own way. Um, But there's also Pokemon who are like, obviously, as you say, tools or pets, and those are fine because they're tools and pets. Um, So like, they're sort of like a bit like Mercer. They're a bit like the androids. They're a bit, I mean, it's it's like they they don't slot into a, an easy relationship with humans. No, and it doesn't. Uh, there's no direct line that you can draw between like how Pokemon are treated and how like we talked a little bit before the show about. Um, well, if we're relating these two things, are Pokemon like androids or Pokemon like the animals and uh and do androids dream of electric sheep? Because they're both like weirdly revered. And then they're also like they're weirdly revered and commodified for their their precious and smallness, but then also they're treated like the androids in their like pragmatic use and how they can be used as workers and the the reassuring um, dignity that they um, that they bestow upon their owners. Yeah, definitely. Like the I think like particularly the when we think about the electric sheep, right. Where like the, the distinction that um, Deckard draws between his living sheep who died and then the electric sheep he got, who is completely indistinguishable 
from living sheep, but fills him with just like a sense of self-loathing constantly that he has this garbage electric sheep and not a pristine living one. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's absolutely something where it's like, yeah, Deckard like is really, really frustrated that he has to live with this terrible sheep as opposed to one that would give him pride in himself and his family. And there's the same sort of like hierarchy in Pokemon too. It's like, we know about the rarity of Pokemon and also in the Pokemon world, they know about the rarity of Pokemon and it's like, okay, a Caterpie is nothing. The Caterpie is shit. That's your electric sheep. And then like, there's, you know, a shiny Charizard who's, you know, your, uh, your real giraffe, your real ostrich. Yeah. We, we want that. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's, it's, so like one of the games that I've been I've been playing a lot for the to like do some research for for the book has been um, I've been playing the Shin Megami Tensei games and like in those it's sort of like Pokemon just with demons but the the funny thing about those games is like when you pick up demons they effectively are like sometimes they don't like you sometimes they do like you they're always demons and like you have to merge them together to make other demons and there's sort of like this understood um animosity that you all share with each other where it's like we all hate each other and uh what you're doing here is vicious and wrong and and that's like more nihilistic uh but at least it sort of makes a kind of sense where it's like what you're doing here is a bit savage and bad um and you should feel bad about it while you do it whereas with pokemon it's always like if you're giving up your caterpie because you need room in your and like your party or like you just like send it off to Pokemon camp uh, with the other orbs that you'll never open again. That scene is totally fine. It's a completely normal thing to do. You like you captured this animal and now you don't want to set it free. You just want to kind of, you know, uh, keep it nestled away in captivity for the rest of its natural life. Mm-hmm. In one of the newer games, maybe you'll put in a mystery trade and hope you get something better back. Right. Just send off your bullshit and hope you get something better back. I mean, yeah, it's like it, it becomes a it becomes a, a trading chip. Like it becomes a thing where you're like, well, you know, I don't care about this thing. Maybe, you know, essentially what it is now is it's capital to me. Like I can I can throw it in. It, it can be like a toss in. It can be something that maybe someone else wants. Um, and that is weird because the whole game's about like finding your friend and battling with them and like forming a bond and stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially whenever you have like Pokemon Let's Go, Eevee or Pikachu, where you have like your Pokemon out with you at all times and it's supposed to be your friend, you play with it, um, but essentially it's like you keep it because it's uh, more powerful. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not because, yeah, it's not because like you, I mean, especially in, in, um, in Pokemon Let's Go or Pokemon Go, like I feel like at a certain point you just like, Especially, especially if you, um, especially if you like play the game slowly or like playing these games uh, for the first time, the early Pokemon you get that you level up with and you feel a bond with, eventually you have to be like, yeah, I'm sorry though, this Dragonite is so much better than you. Um, so like, <laughs> sorry, you just do not have any kind of. Uh advantage over this ice type gem and i am so sorry for that yeah there's just like no utility for you anymore pidgey i'm sorry you're you're trash now um i mean that's like the fantasy of the pokemon series that like ash is still using a pikachu like 14 Mm -hmm. years later or whatever like it's 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 ridiculous um but we accept it because it's like well he's the protagonist of the show pikachu like effectively i think like ash probably is but 
for most people, it's probably Pikachu. And like, you know, it's, I think in Androids, it's clear that like, no, if you have a tool like an Android, they can never become your friends. Cause if they do, then the whole thing gets screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the last scene with Isidore when he's crying and, and, um, uh, about his friends being killed. Deckard's like, they're like, they're not smart. They don't do anything. They're just machines. So they didn't even work very well. And like Isidore just kind of like leaves and goes away. And, and, you know, before he goes, he's saying like, I got to move. And Deckard says like, I'm pretty sure there's a place in my building. And he goes, I don't want to live near you. Like <laughs> Deckard to him is less human than the androids. And like, mm-hmm. you can't really live in the society of androids, stream of electric sheep. If you like, are willing to be friends with androids because at that point every person is going to be less human than they are to you. And also like in a similar way to the fact that like uh, Pikachu in your, in your party in the game will expire in use. It's like the androids are going to expire anyway in like two years. Mm -hmm. And it's like that they have to be hunted down and killed, even though there's no sign that they'll ever do anything besides just like wanting to be free on Earth, and they're gonna they're gonna die in a couple of years anyway. It's not like they're gonna be able to form a new society of androids only society in two years. They're gonna be gone. Yeah, and it's not even like the the Rosen Corporation didn't put that in because like they wanted to control androids. It's literally they like put in because uh, they just don't have a way of. They just don't have a way of Yeah, it's the technological it. limit. Yeah, it's, it's a total limit. And it's like, well, all right, like, that's the limit. That's what we have to be limited by. Um, I guess that's that. Like, it's it, – it, there's a moment in the – there's a moment in the end of the book after um, Deckard sleeps with um, Rachel Rosen, who is, a, who is an android, um, where he says something like he's going to kill her. Um because he's like extremely angry that she had sex with other men than him. Um, weird, weird scene. Uh, but he says he's going to kill her. And then she's like, well, okay, just like make it quick. Um, and he says, you know what? I'm not actually going to kill you. He said, you, you got two years left. I have 50. I'm going to live 25 times as long as you like, it's absurd. I'm not going to kill you. And that's the moment where like the whole premise of the bounty hunter system becomes so, so hard to understand. Or it's like, why are they, why are they doing this? Like, I guess it's because they murdered someone. I guess the, the idea is like they have to hunt them down so they don't murder others or disrupt society. But the idea that like society has androids in it would somehow ruin society, even though they just die off so quickly seems like once you kind of reveal that uh, undercurrent of contradiction, um, it seems like what Dick is saying is like the whole society makes no sense anymore. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no sign that they're... I don't think there's any history of androids, like, escaping to Earth and then continuing to cause any sort of mischief. (laughs) I think they just, like, want to be free, and then they come and live on the abandoned planet, and that's all they want to do. Make a fake police corporation and, and live their fake job lives. We love our fake police corporation. Um, more than the real one. Yeah. I, I liked, I liked that they hired, uh, some guy who was like, actually, they were so convinced that they would be okay that they hired the guy who was like, actually a real life human bounty hunter. Like, it's going to be fine. We'll trick him. Yeah. I like that. They don't explain like the ins and outs of the, the police agency. No, not at all. 
the police. <laughs> it just like this. This human comes to work every day, and he's like, "I guess there's nothing to do again." My boss said nothing again. <laughs> it's really good because it's like it's like the 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 agency is like they're like, "Well, why why does all of this?" So at one point, for anyone who's listening and hasn't read the book, Deckard gets. Uh, Someone, one of the androids calls the police on Deckard, but she basically calls like a secret, like massively staffed android police <laughs> where <laughs> the, the head of the police and the guy who brings uh, Deckard in and, and all sorts of other people in there are androids. And um, one of them is on his bounty list. So like they're going to get ahead of it or whatever. And um, basically, like you find out that the one guy who is certainly human in the whole police department is there. Um, uh, their uh, 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 bounty hunter, uh, Phil Resch, who we find out later has also slept with Rachel Rosen, but is uh, so sick and twisted that he can keep on killing uh, androids even after she sleeps with him, which is, I mean, what, what do you think of that? Like, how, what is the logic there? Like, after you sleep with Rachel Rosen, you can never kill another android. What do you, what's the logic in that? Just, I don't know. Just that uh, you couldn't kill one that looked exactly like her. But she says, like, you can't, like, uh, they, like, they they put her in there because, like, you couldn't kill anyone. You couldn't ever kill an android then. Like, it was it was done at that point. You could never kill another android. It's weird. Well, he had no difficulty. And also, he, you almost convince Phil Resch in the book that he too is an android and he gets a little bit convinced that he's an android and he's like, but I have a squirrel. Like I can't be an android. I got a squirrel. At home. <laughs> have you ever heard of an android having a squirrel? And <laughs> Deckard's like, well, one I, or he's two. Like, I yes. think I love it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like watching the squirrel like run around and it's in its tube and stuff like that. I, I can't imagine I'm an android. Deckard's like, I don't know, man, like you're probably an android. It makes me feel better if you're an android. <laughs> But I like, I think what I'm interested also between um, this book and Pokemon is like the idea of classes of people um, and that there's like these arbitrary lines in, and it's like for a complete gameplay reason, um, but like you, you start out and you just know you're a Pokemon master. You are always on the track to being a Pokemon master and there's no real like barriers and stopping you from just becoming the best. Oh yeah. No, um, not at all. But then like early on, it's like you meet people who are just bug boys. They just love bugs. They're just hanging out in the forest all day, every day for like years. Just, they love these level 10 bugs. I love you, it. You I love it so much. You can't rip them away from the bugs. And that's like what they were born to be is bug boys. And then there's like some people who just like cute pets and they're always going to like, you know, just only cute pets. And they were never made to be Pokemon masters. And it's like they're OK in these roles of not um, not just like climbing to the top, that they're there's something a little bit lesser about them, that they're OK just being bug boys. And they're always so easy to beat because they only have um, bugs, but they don't care. Yeah, and it's because they the bugs are so common that you would never anticipate that these like bug trainers would be difficult because there is the, a value in like common versus rare Pokemon. Like usually the rare Pokemon will be stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting because like it's not. It feels like in this society, 
Pokemon can't be the animals because no one except Phil Resch is satisfied with their an- and you know what that's not true actually because I guess it's really Deckard and his neighbor having this weird arms race. Most everyone else mm-hmm. is pretty cool with their animals. Like the cat owner is like, well, my family has always had cats. Like we've just had cats forever, and like we love our cats. Um, Phil uh, Deckard's neighbor is like, I got a horse, and like no one else can have a horse, and I did this just because it's very impressive. Um, mm-hmm. And Deckard has the weird pathology about animals, but like truly, like he only wants like just bizarre animals he wants an ostrich he won't he's like interested in giraffes he's always looking at the price of just like the most bizarre animals. i love when he, he haggled wants. about the ostrich he's like well that's terribly expensive i can't possibly afford an ostrich at that price <laughs> they're like we are selling this ostrich at a very fair price <laughs> I, won't, I won't go one thousand more dollars on this ostrich <laughs> i do think that in this um metaphor that deckard is the shiny hunter of Oh, 100%. Yes. Because there there are the people who truly care about, like, their Pokemon, and there's people who truly care about their animals, but Deckard is not that person. It's truly about the the rarity and the the status symbol. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, like, he... It's funny because, like, he talks about animals in such a way that he wants to feel like he cares about them right like he mm-hmm. he brings up these animals and he, he he thinks about them in terms of like you know uh i wish i could care for one or i wish we had one that could make us feel whole or like you know even even his wife's kind of like commitment to mercerism you know, he can't quite understand it like he wants to want an animal because he loves the animal but at the same point like when he when he looks at his electric sheep, the electric sheep is acting fine. No one can tell it's an electric sheep. And he's just like, I hate this thing. Like, I don't, you know, you can't possibly ever love something that's electric. And even at the end of the book, the, like what he gets to is like, Oh, I guess they're sort of alive. And that's like a Mm -hmm. huge moment for him. Whereas Phil Resch, who, I mean, is a, seems like a kind of a bad guy, but like Deckard is terrified of him and thinks he's a sociopath is like, I just love this little squirrel. I, he's great. Like, <laughs> and like you'd imagine if it was an electric squirrel, he'd be like, well, it's electric, but it's still pretty great. I love this this thing. It's great. Like only Deckard has this weird pathology around everything. And it's only that he's like beginning to match up simulating affection for electric things in the way that he simulates affection for his wife. Like he doesn't, he's not passionate about his wife. No. Passionate about anything. It's just like, oh, well, I guess I don't really care about anything else, so I guess I can just as much not really care about this electric thing, too. What's the difference? It's, like, more nihilistic than, um, like, this, like, great realization that, you know, like, all life matters, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very nihilistic. Like, it's, it is, he, he says, like, when he, after the goat dies and he flies out to the desert, um, his wife's like, come down with me. Can't you be with me real quick? Like, they found this horrible, like, Buster Friendly is saying this thing about mercerism. He says it's all fake. Do you think that could possibly be real? And he says something like he just goes, everything everyone has ever said is true. Um, (laughs) Then he thinks like, she's like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm fine. And he's like, I'm also going to die someday. Both of these things are true at the same time. (laughs) Just like a total leveling. Like nothing's nothing's fine. Everything's fine. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess, like, what I would ask is, here's a question for you. 
What do you think has the more optimistic worldview, Pokemon or do Androids dream of electric sheep? And uh, for the for the purposes of making it not a completely lopsided contest, let's take nuclear uh, extinction out of the equation. Like if this were just a world where androids existed and Earth was colonizing Mars or something like that, right? Like you're imagining the escaped androids still existing as like these things that come back to Earth and Mercerism is caught on as some sort of like um, Taoist kind of philosophy. Um, like or Jainist, I guess, philosophy. Like what what has the more optimistic worldview, do you think? It's it's seems like you would easily say Pokemon, but I don't know that the I think there's questions raised in Pokemon that are not answered that could easily change the way things go. I don't think that's fair. I don't think Pokemon is necessarily optimistic and I don't think that it uh, that the game is looking to have answers for these things. Like I'm not um, saying that like Pokemon is trying to be like a just sick twisted game but i do think that you just you just wrote the you wrote the story for pokemon black like that that (laughs) that classic rom um but it's like i don't exactly know what the stepping stones for because it seems that pokemon is set in the real world it's like based off of like real geography Um, yeah more or less and so it seems like it's supposed to be set in our world so what were the stepping stones from like animals to pokemon when did we decide like what they could do how much we expected them to work um but still always be under our control that they are like getting smarter and like that they have their own languages that we observe and have feelings and families and yeah um, all this is observable and clearly evolving and we're still eating Pokemon that there's references to eating Pokemon in the game, that they're, they're unpaid workers that they're, uh, they're absolutely unpaid workers. That's for sure. That they are fighters that we are, uh, that they're not getting reimbursed for their fighting. <laughs> but they're also like, they're also fighters who like, like in the, it's just like these fighters who can, who, who exist as like extremely respected fighters too. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like thinking about a uh, like a matchup. I don't think or historically like that that, uh, that that has good parallels. Hmm. I don't think historically that that has good parallels. No, not really. Like, yeah, no, that's a good point. These like think... fetishized fighters. Like, I don't think that um, <laughs> that we want to take that that metaphor to to be. You don't think you don't. What you're saying is you don't think that it's a good idea to. Um, what you're saying is you don't think it's a good idea to think about uh, people who you have enslaved as uh, somehow very, very strong fighters. Yes. Um, I, d- I don't. <laughs> that's really weird. I don't know why you would say that. I don't think that I'm in favor of that. Okay. Um, weird. Uh, I think it's cool <laughs> to do that. <laughs> okay. What do you think about... The Buster Friendly refrain, this refer like ever present refrain in the world that's just like ongoing commentary, and like the Pokemon 
TVs that are just like constantly talking about what you're doing. That they're like constantly interviewing you and then you're on TV. Oh yeah, or, you're right. I never thought about that. I guess like Buster Friendly, like the way TV is represented in this story, like is obviously a very like it's dated. Like the story was written in the 60s. It's very a 60s version of TV where it's like, hey, idiot box is on again. Better better <laughs> dial up whatever you got at the penfield to make you want to watch whatever's on. But like on the other hand, Buster Friendly is like such a it is kind of a perfect version of like the 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 problem with TV, which is that like you you get this this total disconnect from any sort of critical thinking. You're just like, ooh, Buster will tell me what to think. Um, mm-hmm. And similarly in Pokemon, it's like, ooh, uh, the this is the cool word of the week. Yeah, or like I, you know, I um, I'm on TV. That must mean TV is good. Like me working to be a Pokemon master is all I could do because that's what I've been told to do. Like it's it's a game that has a very specific direction, but also a game that has built a world up in such that such a way that like, it feels like it might be the right thing to do to question whether you should be a Pokemon master. (laughs) Yeah. There's like clearly not everyone is a Pokemon master, but you don't really see what the other options for living is in this world. And it's like all the TV revolves around like, okay, who's going to be the Pokemon master. Right. Um, Yeah. So what are all these other people doing? I guess like teaching, living their lives, having stores. Like, I I don't know. Like, and that's the same thing in the electric sheep world is like, what is everyone else doing? That isn't a bounty hunter or a cop. Yeah, exactly. Like we don't see a variety of other jobs. Like who are these other people that didn't immigrate? Is it only bounty hunters still on earth? Yeah. It seems like it's bounty hunters, trash, uh, management people, which has become like the courier. And uh, because of all the kipple, uh, which is which is for the uninitiated uh, trash that piles up in your rooms uh, that Buster Friendly says will take over the world someday. Because this because the thematics of uh, of do Android's dream of electric sheep are the are Philip K. Dick's constant uh, conviction that one day inertia will destroy us all. Um, Or as my neighbor uh, just said today when I said, well, I guess, you know, you just have to. You, like people just uh, instead of imagining that climate change is real, they just hope for some sort of fix. And his his response was, "Yeah, the fix, I guess, is that we're all going extinct." I was like, "Wow, that's that's dark." That is true. It's the one thing that will save the earth. Yeah, it's but it's it's a very dark way of putting it, my neighbor. Um, <laughs> but uh, all right, see you later. <laughs> peace. Um, I just I just like I just go into Twitter mode when I hear that. And I say, like, you know, when you said that, I felt it like when, when you said what you just said, I felt that. Um, yeah, that was tea. I, just, I, just, tea. I like look at him. It's like wig. It's wig to me. Um, <laughs> it's all wig to me. <laughs> but then I think, OK, so not only are there mysterious jobs that are whole, propping up both of these World. Right, 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 right. It's there's also this like very, very spooky uh, architecture to everything, and like the the space in these worlds are both very spooky. Um, that like they're they're all living in these like abandoned apartment buildings because like most of the world has been like bombed, and you're living in like this aftermath of um, like a, a 
nuclear war. And then there's also the Philip K. Dick book. Um, <laughs> but then, okay, so like they are, that's how it's going in Electric Sheep. And then whenever you're playing Pokemon, it's like there will just be this giant department store and it's like, okay, well, it was three stories and there was ten people inside. And it's like... The only thing they sell I mean, here is a, Pokemon stuff. And it like it is a um it is a game like I'm not saying that this is like a real world but it, it's spooky to like enter in a city and it's like okay well this is like the whole community of the city and I was able to talk to seven people and like that's a little bit weird yeah I feel like like what I'm what I'm kind of coming to talking to talking about this with you I, I never would have like thought of this before so must be a good conversation uh, that's always my uh, metric but the <laughs> You know, like the, I feel like the one thing that's that's distinct between um, uh, between androids and Pokemon is that like the the contradictions in the society and in androids are intentional because Dick's trying to make a point. And like you know, before we went on, I talked a little bit. We we were chatting about like uh, PK Dick's like weird, uh, experience with the pink beam that flashed off of some delivery girl's, uh, Jesus fish necklace and informed him of the truth of the universe and stuff like that. Like he basically had a series of mental breaks towards, towards the end of his life, um, that revealed to him the truth of, uh, what he thought the truth of the world was, which was some sort of Gnostic truth. The, the, the shorthand for would be something like the world is a terrible, uh, ugly place. And it's that way because the, the, evil demiurge made it that way but the god god uh, the divine exists within it and it's your job to find him or her or whatever it happens to be and uh and like free it um and you know like i think you can read do androids dream of electric sheep as like proto-gnosticism that way i think you can read it as dick grappling with this idea of um everything having rights and what that would mean i think you can see it as him grappling with this idea of uh scarcity of life particularly in like a post-nuclear world there's all these ways that the contradictions of the book add up to these really kind of compelling thematic claims whereas like pokemon when it was created was a single game and it has grown as to be like a a world and like a, a built up lore driven world via anime manga and video games at this point and none of the contradictions add to that they just take away from it so like pokemon is not asking you to think through these contradictions it is not interested in you thinking about whether or not the cool like three-tailed ox pokemon is being eaten by anyone right like it is so not interested in that um and it is not thematically driven by that. So, like, the difference between the two seems to be something like, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep thrives on those contradictions, and you have to recognize them in order to recognize the value or purpose of the book. Whereas Pokemon, you really are going to miss... Uh, <laughs> you're going to kind of miss the forest for the trees for what Game Freak wants you to uh, see if you focus on those contradictions. Yeah. Do you think that in Pokemon you love your Pokemon? Hmm. It's a good question. Uh, I think you're encouraged to. Um, I think so. One of the things I was going to do for this episode, and then I realized I already had too many associations with Pokemon, and it would just end up being me having like eight different contradictory ideas, mm -hmm. um, 
which is certainly not what this show is. We just have a very, very specific <laughs> through line. Um, actually, I think we have done a very good job of staying specific in our through line. If the audience disagrees, please let me know. But I think we've done a great job. I want to pat ourselves on the back right now. <laughs> I think too few podcasts take a minute to congratulate themselves in the middle. And I'm going to before yeah, in the middle before you even finish off the podcast. I'm going to I'm like, going to yeah, break the trend. You know what? Good job. <laughs> good work so far, Liv. Um, but you know, like the, uh, the one thing I thought about doing was pursuing this way of playing Pokemon Ruby. And maybe I'll do this on stream sometime when I, when I have more time to stream. Uh, cause like, it's fascinating. It's this way of playing it that, uh, I forget who it was, but it, it's like a, a specific kind of rules. Um, when I guess they had played it so many times that it had become boring to them, uh, and like extremely easy, but what they decided to do was you play it basically you only can catch i think it's like the first pokemon you encounter in any given region um you have to try and catch it i forget the exact like limitations of the rules but like the main important rule is whenever a pokemon gets KO'd no matter at what point in the game it can be like your level 99 Pidgeotto that you have been like nurturing the entire game if that and if that pokemon gets KO'd you're to treat it as if it's dead. You ha you can't send it back to the Poke uh, Pokemon Hospital. You can't do anything else. You have to release it, and you can never have it again. Um, and I think that version of the game probably encourages you to love your Pokemon in a particular way, or fear for them, or like mm -hmm. feel like they're they're precious to you. I don't think the game itself, as it's played, is a. Uh, I don't think you're you can care for your Pokemon in that game functionally. I think pretty much you are. Set to um, pretty much at that point, you are set to like love them and leave them. Just like love them as long as they're utilitarian to, or as long as they give you utility, and then like get rid of them just as fast. Yeah, there the game I think does tell you that you like them, and I think that it does in like incentivize it. Um, there's like something and I don't understand exactly how the um, how the mechanics of it play out, but that your Pokemon are a little bit more effective if they're happy. Mm. Um, so like in the newest game, like you can cook for your your Pokemon and they like it. You go camping with them like you do more bonding activities. Okay. So I think that the I, I do think that was like the newest games uh, with Sword and Shield that they're offering something else in the world besides just like okay you are on the path to being a pokemon master and that is the only goal that you could have in this game i think that you could probably spend a good amount of time like just hanging out camping exploring hmm. um collecting different things being a shiny hunter i know that people do that like i think that there's other goals that you can have in playing pokemon whereas like if you played like red and blue I think that you would get bored pretty fast if you weren't just like on the path to. The oh end. yeah, definitely. I mean, you could try and catch them all. I guess like that's the other thing you could do. But like that, they sometimes suggest that you do. Yes, every so often they say you have to. <laughs> um, it's not clear if you truly have to catch them all or not. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, like it's. It reminds me a little of so towards the end of Androids, Deckard is saying like, "Hey, look, like." Um, we uh, like I can't be an android hunter anymore. I can't kill androids anymore. And by the end of the book, it seems like he's willing to kill androids again. Like that was a very short-lived moment for him. But 
he says like I'm gonna have to quit the police department and get another job. Um, and then he thinks about it, and like his wife is like, "Well, what other job are you going to have?" And he's like, "I could just like get a desk <laughs> job or something." And she's like, "That won't pay the bills, and like you'd be bad at it." And like it is this moment of like, what else is Deckard going to do if he's not going to be like a murderer? Um, and there's an argument that that's sort of like the crisis in Pokemon as well. Like I, uh, one of the most interesting things I think, like not relating to my studies, that uh, a professor told me in grad school was that they had done some work uh, analyzing television earlier in their career. And they said like the main genre uh, requirement of the detective show, especially like early detective shows is that they did not have families. The detectives didn't have families. They might be divorced. They might be single, but they couldn't have families because if they had families, then the show would be um, quickly indistinguishable from a sitcom. Uh which is really interesting. I mean, it's like an interesting generic constraint that I never would have thought of. And I wonder if like the, the urge towards violence and conquest to not make it too dramatic sounding, I guess, um, or at the risk of making it too dramatic sounding is the only thing that distinguishes something like Pokemon from something like, um, uh, 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 animal crossing or a game where like your whole focus is just existing in the world and, and, building things and enjoying it and, and, you know, making a place for yourself. Hmm. I mean, you, you were also a child in Pokemon. You're always a child. Um, and it seems like you should have to return home or, you know, call your mom every now and then like an earthbound to save. I think that that would be a good idea if you had to call your mom to save in Pokemon. Yeah, I think um, so too. I, I, I always felt so bad for, um, I felt so bad for the mom. Like she's just like, she's, she is, she's waiting for you at home all the time. It's just, just this feeling that she's like, have a great time becoming a Pokemon master Ash, you know, like give me a call every so often. And like, you could just forget mm-hmm. completely about her. And I, I think it works in the anime, and I feel like whenever you, like, whenever I was a kid and I grew up, like, watching the anime, too, it was like, oh, it was so cool that he, like, got to go with friends and he did talk to his mom and stuff, but in the game that you are, like, on this, like, solo mission. Yeah, um, exactly. It feels very lonely. Because they don't want to have a sitcom in the game. <laughs> it's like, it, I mean, in some ways, it's just, it's, it is legitimately the problem of, it's legitimately the problem of, like, well, so what do I do if I have an RPG that is where the the party isn't like several travelers who are, you know, going along with me, but in fact, like, um, the, uh, you know, like the people that are my weapons as well. Like, you know, how do I make this if we're not telling a story of camaraderie, but we're in fact just telling a story of like collection and battle, and I think, like, Pokemon comes up with some solutions. And I think particularly by this generation, they have to have. Like, they, they are smarter than they were in Red and Blue. But particularly in Red and Blue, like, it is a very empty game as far as, like, plot goes. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a it's not a plot-heavy game by any means. There's the Mewtwo stuff, but, like, I don't know. No one really thinks about that. No, and I think that we... Um, or at least I like mapped on a lot more meaning to the world from the the universe, the the 
manga or the anime um, yeah. that the world felt more special because there's also these other properties um that because otherwise it is yeah it's very empty empty game not many people to interact with it's just uh, everything gearing towards the end yeah yeah that's exactly right and like you know it's i think that's one of the reasons why like watching the sun and moon anime has been so rewarding for me uh, I mean, rewarding, maybe a little strong, but like it's been more enjoyable for me than than a lot of the other interactions I've had with Pokemon. And part of that's just because like, yeah, there's battles and stuff, but a lot of it is about like Ash getting to know all these friends who are like his same age and like, you know, maybe had different approaches to Pokemon than he did. And it's just like, you know, oh, what's their whole deal? And like, oh, they have plot lines and stuff. It's just like it's like an actual sort of story as opposed to just like, you know one person has a goal. Let's watch them work towards that goal. Um, which is just like, I mean, as the, as the, as androids tells us, and like, I think this is the a general point of the book. Like empathy doesn't count for much. If it's solo empathy, like if it's just you, like you're going to still be stuck doing bad things. Uh, Mercer tells Deckard, like everyone does bad things. Everyone does stuff they don't want to do. And that's like the curse of humankind of cur- curse of existence. He says, but like if it's just you doing that like and you're like getting nothing except you know random fellow feeling from other people around you then it's going to be a very empty experience mhm yeah mercer says it's the the basic condition of life to be required to violate your own identity which I guess is what happens whenever you go into, if you're a Pokemon player and you're going in because like, oh, they're so fun. Um, they're so cute. Pokemon are so cute. But you, the necessity of the game is that you have to, to battle in order to do anything else that you would like to do in the game. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you certainly couldn't do like if, if you, if you, if your whole intention in playing Pokemon was to enjoy your time with the Pokemon, then yes, you would have to betray that almost instantly because your time with the Pokemon is now just like leveling them up mercilessly so that they become strong enough to be gym leaders. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, um, the more I think about it, that, uh, John Isidore and the bug boys of Pokemon are the, the ones who got it right. You know what? John Isidore is like the bug boy of Pokemon. You're right. I never thought about it that way. They were just happy with like the first thing they came in contact with and they weren't like, well, I need something better than this. They're like, well, this is this seems pretty cool. It's kind of like the squirrel, like a Russia's squirrel, too. Yeah, yeah. This is this is pretty cool. Why would I why would I need anything other than this? I really like that this um, this podcast is like is helping me understand uh, why the the conversation with Resh in the, in the hover car is not actually a condemnation of Resh, but a condemnation of Deckard, which I never would have gotten to like Resh is bad. He's a terrible person and all, but like everyone's bad in this book. At least Resh has like the squirrel that makes him happy. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Deckard's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm never happy. It's like, what, what's your secret, man? Like, and then like Resh tells him the gross stuff. He's like, Oh, it's like, sleep with him first and he's like i guess that's the secret to happiness instead of like yeah hearing the party talked about where he's like i have this animal at home and i was like i have so much fun um 
Yeah, it's weird, She's right? Like, no, I immediately have to have sex with an android woman and then kill her. That does sound like a, a plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's 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 what Deckard takes out of it. He's like, huh, all right, well, I'll give that a shot, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, Deckard is the, the shiny hunter. He's the Pokemon master. He thinks that he's better than other people for wanting less. Um, if you're not going for the end goal, then why? I- why do it at all? I think uh, I think uh, Rash is Gary Oak. He's the he's the one who seems very evil, but eventually sort of like understands who he is, and just like really loves his one Pokemon that he's like figured out. Who's Gary's one Pokemon? I don't know. Doesn't Gary Gary has like a? It's not a Charizard. Gary has like one Pokemon. It's like that. Like that is like his Pokemon. I'm looking it up now. Maybe it's maybe he's a Team Rocket in their meows. Oh yeah, that's probably right. I like that. That's sweet. Yeah, yes. That's nice. That's a nice. That thought. is a nice thought. It's it's a little less. It's a little <laughs> less depressing. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess like. Um, oh, he has a. Well, he has an Eevee. Um. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You, you're probably right. I don't think Gary has like a. He has a Squirtle. He has an Eevee. He has an Elect Crabby. Nido King. Yeah, none of these are actually like classic. They're not memorable. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're not Meowth. The close. They're not Meowth. You're right. And and if they're not Meowth, they're garbage to me. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think that's right. So let me ask you one last serious question, and then we can wrap up with our general uh, thoughts. If we missed anything, if you have any sort of like lingering ideas. Um, my last specific question, and this is my last hard question, but I did warn you about this one. So this isn't coming from nowhere. Um, <laughs> like, what do you make of the gender stuff in this book um, in androids? Like, I think classically male sci-fi writers of this period have and, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong on this, because I might be. But I, I think they have two settings. The one setting is they're bad on gender, but they uh, they explain that away by saying, like, they weren't writing the book with gender in mind. Like, oh, I, that wasn't part of the consideration I had or something like that, right? And the other version is they're bad on gender because they're working out some sort of, like, internalized misogyny that they just are, like, writing out in their work. Um I don't think there's a lot that are good on gender. So that's there's no third that's good on gender. Those are the two <laughs> options. And I think this book is bad on gender. So you can correct me on that if you want to. Uh, but I wonder if you think it's, like, malicious or if you think that Dick really didn't, like, he didn't think about it. And, and by not thinking about it, created a sort of, like, problematic vacuum. Mm, I think it's uh, a bit of those things, but also I feel like... I don't think that he's not thinking about it at all. I think that if he was thinking about how he wrote Rachel as like constantly thinking about this woman's body and like how she looks and how sexually attractive she is, but also she looks like a child, but no, 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 Mm -hmm. not quite like a child. (laughs) And like you can tell from her eyes, she's not a child. Absolutely not a child. She's an adult woman. Her body looks a little bit childlike, but don't focus on that. Like she's definitely an adult. Like I think that, there's no way that he wrote that and wasn't thinking about how it would be perceived. I think that frequently 
um, like these just kind of like uh, dark looks at how um, women are sexualized. I think they are conscious mm. and that it's not malicious directly that it's um, almost like trying to like uh, bestow a grittiness to the world. Uh, and yeah. like, you know, that Deckard, like his, his wife is so depressed and out of it. She doesn't offer anything to him. And then also like, there's this like sexy woman, but like, Oh, she doesn't really have any value either. And I think it's also from looking at like in, uh, Philip K. Dick's The Cosmic Puppets. There's also like, there's also this child character, this this woman who that the main character I doesn't have sex with, but wants to have sex with, who has mm-hmm. a child's body, but is actually a god, and so that's why it's okay to like think about Ugh. her because it's not actually a child, like it's a it's a god. Um, so it's like you see these. Even worse, he is somehow. working something out, and I think that he also like had a, a, a poor history with women in real life. Mm-hmm. So I think that I don't know exactly what he's trying to say about society, or if he's truly just working something out, or thinks it's just like some gritty characteristic of this world that um, that adds some sort of dimension. Like maybe, I mean, it doesn't sound maybe great. There is something to, no, no, no. I don't think it's great, but maybe that there is something to think about in how women are treated in this world. Yeah. I think that's it's like, just, there's, there's a, there's a way of, I don't know if it necessarily, I don't know if you'd call it like a way of redeeming uh, what, what's going on here. But I also think like one thing you can say about it is that like, you, you probably could say that, the sexualization of Rachel by like every character in the book, even though she has like a childlike body, as opposed to like, you know, um, Deckard says it early when he, when he sees Lula, he's like, uh, or Luba, excuse me. He's like, uh, he's like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe I'll like this woman better. Cause like, she's like an actual woman. Um, but he doesn't, like, he's like, he completely still likes Rachel better after the fact. And it's like, he kind of he kind of like signifies that this isn't okay, but also just like falls right into it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that he doesn't have but he doesn't have the same exact feelings for Pris either, who has literally the same body as Rachel. Right, yeah, he can like just somehow kill Pris. she's Yeah. Somehow she's less sexy, even though it's literally the same body. So like I guess it's I'm trying to say something about society. <laughs> who knows yeah but literally like he he is very guilty of the um classic men uh women written by men kind of descriptions of like boobs first and then like maybe you talk about her eyes and then maybe you talk about like just how how tiny her little hands are her little feet he loves talking about the types of boobs women have yeah, he really does. He's and very he into talks it. about feet less than you would expect. He seems like he would he would go uh, into the feet descriptions as well. <laughs> you know what? He might actually uh it might be on the cutting room floor. His editor might have been like, you know what, you gotta cut pages, Dick. And it's either the boobs or the feet <laughs> that go. It's like, don't make me choose. Um 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, you're right. And, like, also, I think the way she talks about, like, sex and stuff is very men writing women. Where she's like, well, you know with us androids, when we get turned on, we can't turn it off. I think you, like, you took advantage of me. And then, like, the <laughs> the sub, he's like, but she didn't seem quite angry. It's like, man, just, like, work through this somewhere else, please. Yeah. It, it doesn't need to happen in this, like, basically novella. Yeah, like, I didn't need the afterglow of you and Rachel having sex. Like, you and Rachel having sex could be a plot point, and then you can move on to the next thing. That would be fantastic. Oh, but overall, um, what did you think about the, what did you think about the book? And then what did you think about uh, our comparison? Yeah, well, like I said, this was a, a reread. This is not a reread for any of y'all. This is the one, one good take on both of these things. No rereads. No reread. Um, I enjoyed this book more than I even remembered liking it. Like it was a lot pulpier and faster this time whenever I didn't have to like, like how we talked about like the, there's a lot of front loading in mm-hmm. the um in the world building which I didn't have to work through as much this time so it was a, it was so fast uh, it's I found like it a fun incredibly fast yeah fun easy book um, I read it in about a then, day like and that's not usually what I do like I have I'm pretty slow at reading cuz like I take a lot of notes and stuff and I didn't take any notes this time so that might have helped but it was quick man super fast yeah. So, I mean, it was it was fun and um the more that I was reading it, like it was like we decided that we wanted to put these two things together off of like basically like a superficial relationship I think between um the Pokémon and the animals in this book. Whereas like I think that there was a lot more to as I was reading it that I was figuring out Oh, there's more about like the the android relationships in this yeah. book and the class of Pokemon trainers that are interesting to compare rather than just like that one superficial um, comparison between the book and the the games. So yeah, no, I totally agree. I think like um, I didn't know what we would end up talking about. Oh, so uh, I should start with I really enjoyed the book uh, for much of the same reasons that you said. It felt a lot more. Um, a lot more cohesive to me this time around, uh, which mm-hmm. I was very surprised by. Um, the one thing I'll say is I I was I was thinking like maybe maybe we'll end up with, you know, maybe we'll end up with a version of this book that is like, you know, and the comparison of Pokemon, which is like interesting because we're talking about like ownership and and humanity and stuff, but not super deep. And But then like as I was thinking about it and as I was thinking about all the ways that like people are depicted in this book and, and, and like non people are like, I think like if, if Dick is extremely bad on gender, which he is, he's very good on thinking about like the way we categorize and dehumanize people and like very Mm -hmm. good at criticizing that. Like, I think that element of the book really, really spoke to me in this comparison. Yeah. He definitely says a lot. I wouldn't go into any of his books expecting it to give you the right take or to be moralizing in any way, but it definitely says a lot. And then um, you can come away with different things than maybe he was writing in. Yeah. That's a very good way of putting it. It's not, you're not going to get to a point where it's like, Oh, now I know the, the right way to handle um, <laughs> how, how society really is, how to treat people. <laughs> like I, I read, I read, uh, I read Vallis, and now I know how to handle society. Uh, you're not going to get that. But you uh, – I don't know. Like I think there's 
there's a lot of as a as a professor once said in to me in like a way that I think he was trying to be nice, but also explain like why the paper wasn't especially good. And it's something I've kept with me a long time. Uh, there are a lot of lines of thought here. Uh, there are many lines of thought and many of them are interesting if not fully fleshed out. Um, I think it's a really good book for like, I don't know, introducing and thinking through big issues. Um, now whether or not it comes to conclusions on those issues or not, your mileage is absolutely going to vary. Uh, but I think, you know, the one really, really compelling thing about this novel this time through, and then talking about it with you is the way that Deckard makes a full like emotional journey as a protagonist and the book immediately and like in a super interesting way undercuts it, which like to mm -hmm. me speaks just as much about like how we experience something like, you know, Ash and his like various like massive journeys that are then instantly undercut because he is a cartoon character. But in the in the case of Deckard, it's not because he's a cartoon character that is going to be, uh, you know, immediately recast or something like that. It's because, like, he's a, a flawed person. Yeah. And similarly, like what you were saying with Ash is like that this year was the first year he ever won, like the Pokemon Championship yeah. in the anime. Like that he was constantly like, yep, this is the year I'm going to do everything I can <laughs> go all to all the big battles. And then just like lost. And it's like, there's no one winning in, um, in androids. No. Like what you were saying is like, he's come to a conclusion, but it doesn't really matter. And like, he's still not likable. There's no one likable in this book really, except for like Isidore. Um, and you're not going to get to like, it's, it's like the, uh, it's like that scene. And this is also a show that's kind of like a weird thing to bring up because like, it's aged so badly, but uh, it's like that scene in Arrested Development, which actually is is still quite funny, where uh, where uh, Tobias uh, David Cross's character is talking to his wife um, Lindsay, and um, whose ac actor's name I completely forget. I'm sorry, uh, um, Portia del Rossi, uh, and and he's like, well, we could, uh, he's just like, well, we could try and see other people or we could open our relationship. And he's like, but that never works for anyone. It just makes things way worse. He goes, but it might work for us. And like, that's, that's kind of like the thing that happens at the end of the book where like, uh, Iran and he have like a, uh, a relationship that works out again, but she's just calling to repair the electric toad. And it's like, mm -hmm. anyone reading that is like, this is not going to fix this. Like what you're going to end mm -hmm. up with is not some sort of like renewed love between you two. It's going to come to the same head again. Yeah. There's no fix to anything in this world. No. Like they're living on an empty planet. Yeah. It's just, there's... it's just waiting for the Kipple to take over. Yeah. They, they're just going to need a new Mercer. That's kind of what I would expect. Would there would be like some Neo Mercerism. Um, there has to be something to replace Mercerism or the world will crumble though. There will be no more um, society on this earth. Yeah, I think that's right. Like it's, it is, it is, it is all about waiting for the end. Whereas the opposite can be said of Pokemon. That's always looking ahead to the next thing. Um, which I mean, is the ultimate difference between the two of them. Huh? Any final thoughts? I don't have any, so it's okay if the answer is no. I don't think so. I think this is it. I think we, we did it. GG, no reread. 
GG no reread. Well, thanks for being here, Liv, and thanks for being here, everyone else. This is the first of a, of a series that we'll, we'll come back to. Obviously, this one takes a little more uh, prep uh since we have to read and then play something uh it's a lot of work but it's it's a lot of fun too so we'll be doing another one soon um uh and i think we're going to be deciding on that very shortly and uh i we will keep you abreast i hope you really enjoyed this new uh this new show and next time i'll be able to give you some of the books ahead of time as well it'll be it'll be fun it'll be we'll be uh we having a lot of fun with this i think I think so. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm already having. Yeah, me too. You know what? Forget these listeners. I'm having fun. (laughs) Who knew that we would ever include uh, books on this podcast? That's all about looking at video games as if they are text. Uh, Well, you know what? What I say is, why bring in text when you already have video game text? But then you reminded me that um, it's okay to do that. That we like them. you, you, You taught me. You taught me it was okay to be weird. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so glad I could do that for you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm telling you this while not uh, mourning uh, you passing away too, which is really nice. People should tell the other people that they taught them to be weird before it's too late. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, Liv, I will talk to you again soon. All right. All right. So long. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.